Do you remember that commercial from several years ago? It didn't, wasn't on for very long, but when I saw it for the very first time, it made me, or reminded me of our theme verse for this sermon series from Psalm 133.1, that behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So we don't have to be the same in order to have authentic unity with each other, a unity that's both delightful and a unity that is life-giving to all concerned. But I want you to think a moment about those diverse animals that, that you just saw in that Android commercial. I mean, who would have thought it possible that they could relate to each other like that? Uh, now think about some of the diverse personalities that are right here in this church. When you saw some of those animals up there, did, you, did some names of some people right here in the body come to mind? I mean, we've got tigers. Some are tigers. Uh, we've got some that are kittens. We've got some that are cute little ducks. We've got deer. We've got awkward-acting orangutans, folks. It is a zoo around here. Yet we can experience unity without there being uniformity and being the same. How? Well, our very first Sunday, we looked at what Jesus explained in John chapter 17 and verse 21 when he said, they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So again, our unity is not based on uniformity of preference or of taste or of opinions like in some volatile areas as in worship style, worship music, politics, or mask wearing. We don't have to have it. Our unity is deeply rooted, according to John 17, in Jesus Christ because our common ground is that we all are gathering at the level ground at the foot of the cross, where we celebrate the fact that we have experienced God's outrageous grace in saving us. That's where our unity is found. And so every day, every day we make the choice. Are we going to focus on those things that could potentially divide us, or are we going to focus on that which unites us? And the choice that we make in this area determines how our relationships are going. A couple of years ago, in my time with the Lord in the morning, I read a little phrase that's tucked away in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9. It's, it's something I had read many times before, but that morning God kind of clobbered me over the head with it. The phrase is, it is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. That truth is especially important to remember when we are in conflict with another person. Those times when things have become raw and tender, when we're puzzled, when we are hurt, when we are emotional, when we get defiant, when we get defensive, or we become irritated with them, it's at that very moment that it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Now, last Sunday, we looked in the Scriptures at how we respond when we hurt someone else. 
Let's flip the coin now to the other side of that, and let's this morning examine what do we do when we've hurt someone else, I mean, when we've been hurt by someone else, when what they do has, has their negative consequences of what they've done literally splash on me when their words have been like a knife that have been, that's been thrust into my heart when their self-centeredness, it has just, just ruined my plans. What do I do? Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Matthew chapter 18. This is where we're going to allow Jesus Christ to speak into this. And I want to begin in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Follow along as I read. So Peter comes up to Jesus and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Isn't the question that Peter is asking, that he wants to know the answer to, isn't what we want to know as well? How many times do I need to forgive that person when they repeated me, repeatedly hurt me. Is seven times enough? What is Peter wanting to know? What do we want to know? That when it comes to forgiving others who have hurt us, what are the limits? What are the boundaries? Where are the edges? And I'm sure what Jesus said in response to Peter's question left him and all the disciples with their mouths hanging open. Because we're not to forgive seven times. Now, depending upon the translation you have in front of you, it's either going to say 77 or 490. In other words, 70 times 7. But the point being made by Jesus is don't get caught up in what number He is using. The point being made by Jesus is not how far should I go, but how deep should I go. And to make his point incredibly clear that that's what he's really talking about, about how deep our forgiveness can go, Jesus tells one of his mind-blowing, life-changing stories that starts in verse 23 and then goes all the way to the end of the chapter. And this story that you probably know well has two different parts to it. And the first part is about a king and one of his servants. Follow along as I read starting in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me. Or in some of your translations it says, have mercy. And I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the house released him and forgave him the debt. Okay, so what we have here in the opening scene is a story that revolves around a debt that needed to be repaid. Now let's look at the text and make some very important observations here, first of all. Notice this, this servant has amassed this enormous debt. It's described to us as 10,000 talents there in verse 24. Now, at that time, one talent equaled 20 years of income. So do the math. His debt was 200,000 years of an income. 
put that into perspective of our day, if you just earn a very modest $35,000 a year, we're talking $7 billion. The king holds the paper on the investment he made. It is a loan. He wants his money back. Second observation. The servant is accountable to repay the debt. Verse 25, verse 26, we see that he does not deny that the debt is his. He just does not have the ability to repay. I mean, he is way beyond Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University helping him in any way. So he and his family are faced being sold as slaves. And if you think today that paying 22% on your credit card is tough economic times, consider being sold as a slave. A little tougher back then. Third observation. Look at verse 26 and verse 27. In a stunning, unanticipated act, the servant falls on his face, pleads for mercy or patience in some of your translations, but he is given grace. Now recognize the word grace never shows up in the story but it's seen in the behavior of the king. Because look closely at the three responses that the king has. Look at verse 27 specifically. Here they all three are. First, notice, the king felt pity. That word means compassion. So the first response, the king's heart got involved. Compassion is when we ache on the inside for the plight, the negative plight of somebody else. So the king's heart saw the situation from his servant's point of view, and it bothered him. Second response, he not only had pity, but notice the master of that servant, here's the second response, released him. In other words, the king removed the consequences of the debt. He wasn't going to be sold as a slave. He was going to be able to walk out of the presence of the king a free man. But there's a third response. Third, the debt was forgiven. In other words, it was erased. It was gone. The record is clear. This guy's credit score shot up 500 points overnight. But again, notice here, the man had asked for time to repay, but the king went so much deeper, so much further instead, there are now no consequences. There's no postponement of the debt. Rather, he removes even the necessity to have to repay it all. See, now you can see why, even though the word grace is never used, this is what's being given to the man. Again, remember the difference between mercy and grace. The servant wanted mercy, mercy which is don't give me what I deserve. What he got was grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Okay, let's hit the pause button for a moment. What's the point of the story so far? Jesus, the master storyteller and teacher, wants us to grasp how we, we, have the remarkable offer to inhale 
grace. Jesus wants us to, to personally enter into this story. And there is something very easily inside of us that connects with this servant here. I mean, we may, for, for most of our lives, found it difficult, if not impossible, to put it into words, but we understand what it feels like to live with an enormous debt. And the debt that really bothers us is not a financial one. No, it's, it's a much worse one. For example, it could be the accumulation of self-centered choices where we've got a long period of time of using and just discarding the people around us. It could be our vicious tongue that time after time has slashed and gouged so many, leaving them wounded, leaving them humiliated by what we've said. It could be my addictions, which reveal to nobody else but to me how out of control I really am because I just can't say no in that specific area. It could be those times where I refuse to listen and time and time again I have walked away from God when He was reaching out to me. Or it could simply be my pride that has kept me from going to that person or other people and saying I was wrong, please forgive me. And so that person that I really care about has been deeply hurt. Those and other things like it just begin to build up this enormous sense of debt that we have on the inside and it weighs heavy on us. And it brings this unsettling realization, I can't pay this back. I'm in over my head. There, there isn't any way I can get out of all of this. And then just the thought that I'm going to be held accountable for all that, that there's a day of reckoning that's going to come, that I'm going to have to stand before a king myself one day, that can scare the living daylights out of us. Now, before you start hyperventilating, just take a deep breath here with me, okay? Jesus wants us to inhale deeply of grace. If like in the first part of this story, we too will but cry out for the king, to the king for mercy, we'll not only get mercy, folks, we'll get grace. Remember what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 and verse 8 tell us. In Christ we have redemption, literally rescue through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Or how about Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So when we come to a story like this, we need to understand who the characters are. Jesus is the king. And that means anybody who humbly comes and asks for mercy because of the realization that their debt is so enormous that they can never repay, what are they going to receive from the king? They're going to receive both mercy and grace. Folks, that is the wonderful news of the gospel. God will give us what we don't deserve. A compassionate response from his heart, a releasing into freedom, and a complete and utter forgiveness of all debt. 
That's why I love Ephesians 1, 7. God's grace is lavish. It's extravagant. It's over the top. And the wonderful thing about it, it's all a gift. In fact, I find it fascinating in the New Testament that the Greek word for gift and grace are the exact same word. So gifts are given not because they're earned, not because the giver expects the givee to pull out their wallet and start giving them money to repay them back. No, the, the gift is given simply because the giver wants to. It's a grace thing. That's why we need to be reminded then also of Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a free gift. Now, the grace gift from Jesus is not a one-and-done experience. You may be tempted to think it was, but it's not. And yes, it does start at the point of salvation, which, by the way, some of you here this morning may need to make that initial cry to the king for. But for the rest of us who have already done that every single day of our life, we are in desperate need of God's fresh grace flowing into our lives, especially as we face the depth of our sin and how that's impacting our interpersonal relationships. See, Jesus intends for the inhaling of grace to be invigorating. It's like taking a deep breath of of fresh air on that cold spring morning. It just brings life to our bodies. It's like, this is great. And just as we need to inhale oxygen into our lungs to live, so we need to inhale grace to have eternal life inside of us, which is a life that God intended for us to have ever since he put Adam and Eve on the planet. See, God's grace is meant to give us freedom from everything that used to bind us. God's grace is meant to change the course and direction of my life to a whole new trajectory. God's grace brings forgiveness so I can now enjoy a relationship with God. I don't have to hide from Him. I don't have to run away from Him. In other words, the daily experience of breathing in His grace changes everything, and especially it changes everything about my relationships with other people right? Oh, but the story isn't over. What's the first word in verse 28? But, hmm. The plot now takes an unfortunate but not unusual turn. Look at what happens now in the second part of the story. Now we'll watch the servant and one of his peers, starting in verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who, hold, who owned him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. So once again, we, we have a debt that needs to be repaid. Only in this case, what does the servant who's in the first part of the story, now in the second part of the story, what's he do? 
Well, look at the debt. First of all, verse 28. What's owed him is relatively, relatively minor. A hundred denarii, and a denarii was something you were paid at the end of a day of work. So it's one day of wages. So basically we have a hundred day of wages in, uh, that's maybe roughly $9,000, talking about my modest income before. So it's not enormous, it's manageable to repay. But this first servant, in an aggressive act, grabs this other guy and begins to choke him, demanding immediate payment. And then notice in verse 26, the almost identical acts and the identical language. The second man pleads for mercy, verse 29. All he wants is a little time. But what he gets, verse 30, when the first guy refuses, he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt What that guy gets is harsh justice. He's thrown into prison. Interesting, uh, Paul David Tripp makes the observation, it's natural for us to be more in tune with our, our own feelings than with the feelings of others. It's also natural for us to want mercy for ourselves, but justice for others. Verse 32, the rumor mill works quickly. The king hears from others what's just occurred. And so, in verse 32, that first servant is summoned back into the presence of the king. And what is his, how, is his, how is his behavior described? Look at the word. Wicked. Verse 33. The expectation is that he would do to others according to what has been done for him. Verse 33, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Ooh, see that key word? If you've got your Bibles, take your pen or pencil, underline as. In other words, grace is given in order that grace can be passed on. Mercy should spawn mercy. Now think this through real carefully here. Jesus is teaching a powerful truth by way of a negative example. Have we experienced the remarkable offer to inhale grace? If so, then now we have the remarkable opportunity to exhale grace. See, what happens or what is the way God's designed our physical life is the same way that He's designed our spiritual life. We were given lungs, not balloons. And yet all too often, we are so ready to inhale the intoxicating pleasure of grace, but somehow we find it difficult to exhale that. But that's how we were designed. We were created to inhale and exhale all the time. In fact, do you realize your lungs never worry uh, that there won't be air the next time they try to breathe in and then just, they just hold on to it? No, they never worry about that. Likewise, we should never worry that we will run short on God giving us His grace. In fact, I think you know, the act of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation is so good here because we inhale 
air and then we exhale it and pass on that life-giving oxygen for that other person. That's how grace is to work. Do you see the connection now to Hebrews 13.9? It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. When we have inhaled God's extravagant lavished grace, we are then to exhale grace into that conflict where that other person is in debt to you, has wounded you, has caused you incredible pain, and your act of inhaling and exhaling grace will bring life. Now, I know some of you have already jumped ahead and you're thinking, so what do I do? How can I breathe grace into that interpersonal conflict? Well, to answer that question, let me first of all bring an important verse into play here, a verse that we'll look at more deeply in a couple of weeks. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, where Paul writes and says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Okay, so take that, connect it back into the story here in Matthew 18 where we are. What did the king say in verse 33? was his expectation of the servant, do as I did for you. And what does Hebrews 4.32 tell us? Forgive each other as in Christ God forgave us. You see it? How can I breathe, breathe grace into any conflict? Act like the king. Do what God did for me in Christ. Okay, how do I act like the king? Well, you remember the three responses the king gave up in verse 27 when the servant pleaded for mercy? That's how you exhale and breathe grace into any interpersonal conflict. Let's look at each of those. First, I allow, like the king, I allow my heart to get involved with pity, with compassion. Folks, compassion will change us. Compassion will make me realize, you know what, I could easily have done what they did if I had been in their place. Just change the circumstances a little bit. I can do that. I could have done that. Compassion changes me because I, within, I'm willing to re- release them from my prideful standard of perfection that I don't even live up to. Compassion will change me because I, even though I don't condone what they did, I understand how they got to that point. Let your heart get involved. But look at the second behavior of the king that like us, I mean, should then also be like us. When I breathe grace, it releases. So ask yourself in the conflict that you have with that other person, what consequences in this tension do I have control over? Uh, Have I been avoiding them? Have I stopped speaking to them, but I'm talking to others about them behind their back? See, when grace is breathed into a conflict, it releases all negative consequences 
that we can control, those consequences cease. Third response of the king that can be ours as well, not only allow my heart to get involved, not only release them. Third, breathing grace forgives the debt. By the way, the king erased $7 billion of debt. It was no longer there. It no longer needed to be repaid. It was no longer the debt. It, it was erased, no longer in existence. Nothing had to be repaid to the king. Now understand something, though. Make no mistake about it. Forgiveness is costly. The king gave up $7 billion. Jesus Christ had to go to the cross to forgive us. The expectation that I release is that I'll ever be repaid. It will release you from the expectation that you'll ever be seen as right. It'll release you from the expectation that you'll ever get vindication. See, that's breathing grace. I wish this was theoretical, but it's not. A few years ago, I experienced a betrayal by a family member, a significant betrayal that led to my being unemployed immediately and then underemployed for about a three-year period. It took me quite a while to forgive that family member, sincerely forgive them, and then it was three years later that I got a phone call from them that they had been fired from a job. <laughs> um, God's irony. They had been fired from a job, and um, they were moving back into town and wanted to know, could they come live with us for a week um, until they got their own um, living uh, arrangements settled? So I'm on the phone, and I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking inside, have I really forgiven him? <laughs> um, was I really ready to express grace out of compassion that had released and canceled the debt? So I said yes. God, God wanted to make sure I had really done it. They didn't stay for a week. They stayed for five weeks. In a very small town home, where we ended up doing life together and eating all of our meals together. <laughs> Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. <sighs> Compassion, release, forgiveness. Only a heart that's been strengthened by grace, that has deeply inhaled grace, can then exhale grace into a conflict. Now look at the last two verses of Matthew 18. We're not done yet. Almost done. Not quite. What do the last two verses tell us? And in anger, the king delivered this servant to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. What does Jesus mean by that? It was a great story up until then. Well, maybe this will help. They tell me that an estimated 500,000 tons of water flow over Niagara Falls every minute. 
In other words, that's a lot of water flowing over it. But back in March the 29th of 1948, the falls suddenly stopped. There was no water going over them at all. Those that lived nearby that were accustomed to hearing the falls were awakened early that morning to absolute silence. And it was 30 hours before the rush of water started back down the falls again. What had happened? Well, heavy winds out on Lake Erie set the ice fields in motion, and they pushed up against the entrance to the Niagara River near Buffalo, literally stopping the flow of, of, of all water, clogging it up. Until 30 hours later, the winds shifted and moved the ice away. When we inhale grace but refuse to exhale it into our conflicts and tensions with other people, it is our cold indifference that then blocks our experience of receiving God's grace anew. So we're not talking about you're losing your salvation here. We're not talking about you're ticking God off so He's going to give you the silent treatment. No. To inhale but not exhale grace simply cuts the flow of new grace. We're lungs. We're not balloons. And so when grace disappears, all we have left is the experience of life as harsh justice. Oh, can we remember old stories of grace? Yeah. But I can't talk about it for today because the flow is stuck. The remedy is simple. Let your heart once again be strengthened by grace. Inhale. Exhale. Breathe grace. Father, This powerful little story is such a transforming thing for it causes us to look within when, as we've already talked about, we want to make it all about what that person has done. But you ask us to look within to make sure that we are breathing grace into this situation like in every situation. Father, you want this to be about us inhaling grace and being transformed by it and then exhaling grace and letting it be a transforming quality to then that relationship that is experiencing tension and conflict at the moment. Lord, we don't know how to do that but you do. We can't change ourselves, let alone change that other person, but you can. And that's why this life of following you is supernatural. That apart from the Holy Spirit, our hearts will not be strengthened by grace. And so, Father, we just want to have the courage and boldness to say, will you do that in us? 
Will you so transform us by the inhaling of grace that we delightfully exhale it then into our relationships with others, in our homes, families, work, school, even among us here in this body of believers. And Father, would you do it so that you get the glory, so that we're the first ones to say, boy, this is not my natural instinct to do it, but God, this is what you're leading me to do and watch what you do, and it's going to be wonderful. So, Father, we pray this, not because we are confident in ourselves to think that anything comes from ourselves, but it's all from you. Lord, would you transform our ability to meet those times when we've been hurt by breathing grace into it. Father, that's our prayer as we pray to the God of mercy and grace and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. this morning, that it may be over this morning or the last couple of weeks, that you've been hearing what the scriptures have been saying to us about the way our interpersonal relationships, how we deal with those conflict times, but you're still struggling. You're really still trying to work out how does that then speak to the situation I am in. Can I just encourage you, take the opportunity to be vulnerable and transparent with a trusted friend, maybe one of the pastors on staff, maybe one of the elders that you know, invite them to speak into this. Allow them to come and bring the wisdom that God's given them to help you understand how to take those scriptures and apply it to that very specific situation. Because you see, we do not have a Savior who can't understand. Boy, if there's anybody who lived with conflict, people saying abusive things to him and treating him in abusive ways, It was our Savior. And so as our benediction, what are we encouraged then to do from Hebrews chapter 4? Well, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God bless you all. Have a great rest of your week. You're dismissed.